This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's another edition of the Equalizer podcast as we hit the third weekend in September. The NWSL continues with the fall series. We'll talk about that in the second half of the show. But at the top, as promised last week, Susie Rack from The Guardian joins us. It's an off weekend for what was supposed to be, I guess it is for some countries, a FIFA window over in Europe. Uh, but there was no WSL action. But Susie, it took us a little while to connect. But thanks for hanging in there and uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Happy to happy to jump on and uh, and be here. Well, as it took us a little while to get this interview sorted, uh, it also took a while for the Tobin Heath Kristen Press signings to finalize with Manchester United. There was a a, th- a sentiment in the United States that it wasn't as big of a deal in England as it should have been, even among the women's soccer folks. What what were your th- thoughts as that story kind of manifested itself and drew out over the course of several weeks oh that's a good uh, that's an interesting point because I think amongst women's football circles I I definitely think it was seen as as a pretty big deal not quite the scale of the um uh Lavelle and Mewis to Manchester City deals but that's purely I think because of um Rose Lavelle's impact at the World Cup and that reaching a bit of a wider audience, I suppose. So, you know, you've got a name that is just a little bit more known in England than uh, some of the rest. Um, So I think that probably had a little bit of an impact. Also, the fact that Manchester City are obviously year in, year out title challengers um, and Manchester United are quite new to the game in in terms of the Women's Super League, uh, having only been in one season um so those definitely affected the the sort of hype around the uh press and heath signing but I women's circles generally want to get a little bit deeper uh very very excited about those two joining Manchester United for me what's really interesting is um you know Casey Stoney's got a very very experienced uh defense you know she took brought most of her defensive uh teammates from liverpool when she you know kind of left the club uh six months or something before she ended up as man united manager um she ended up sweeping in for a bunch of the players that she played with so really good experienced defensive base um and uh a very bright young midfield and forward line and bringing in players with the experience um, and, you know, uh, winning mentality of Heath and Press to influence those young players could be as impactful as 
anything they're able to do on the pitch, if anything, because, yeah, they've got some, you know, brilliant young talent in the likes of Lauren James and Leah Galton um, and Katie Zellum and some, re- some real excellent young English talent as well. And to have players of the calibre of Heath and Press coming in and training alongside those players, influencing those players, pushing those players on, I think could actually be the biggest impact that they have. I think that's the case with with all of the imports, actually. I think the, the effect they will have on dressing rooms and training and attitudes um, could be more important than, than any impact they have on the pitch, whilst they've all got the potential to obviously uh, hopefully set the set the WSL alight, you'd like to you'd like to think. These are very unique contracts because of the U.S. soccer, mm-hmm. you know, paying these players to play in the league over here in the NWSL. Is there no one knows how long they'll be there for? Is there a sense with these teams, Susie, that they're under pressure to get top performances out of these players this season because they could all be back in the United States by the fall? I think, you know, for the caliber of players they are, they're sort of, they're, there is definitely a hope that they will hit the ground running. Um, obviously, you know, then because of quarantine and things, they're not having a lot of time to, to train and integrate with, with, with their squads before they kind of jump into competitive action, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is important that they get up and running. Who knows how long they're going to be here? Um, you know, it, it may well be a short period of time, but the fact that the WSL is, is, such an exciting place to be at the moment with the Australians that have come in, the Americans that have come in, you know, the return of Lucy Bronze, Alex Greenwood, players like that. Um, you, you hope that we might see more players wanting to play in the WSL in future and that this won't just be a fluke one off and, you know, maybe the, the reins of US soccer might get loosened a bit in that respect because ultimately, um, you know, having, superstars from the US playing in the WSL week in week out is going to strengthen that league and hopefully start a bit of a perpetual uh, process of, of, of top US players wanting to play in the WSL to take back and then help improve their league as well you know the NWSL is a brilliant league in and of itself I don't think we're ever going to see that league fall away the strength of the US women's national team of the uh, of the college system, or the commitment of a huge number of people involved in, in in the AWSL means that that is going to be and will continue to be a very very successful league in its own right. And I think a a more reciprocal relationship of players going backwards and forwards between that that league and the WSL can only be uh, a, a great thing developmentally for those for those two leagues. Um, for the the different qualities that they provide, obviously the WSL. Growing, taking huge strides forward technically um, as a game, which uh, can, can only be beneficial to have some of the some of the great technical players of the WSL influences some of the US players back into into that league too. So I hope it's longer term that we see these kind of transfers going on. Obviously, in the case of these particular players, you know you you, you kind of can't really be sure exactly how much we're going to get out of them. Um, and that's why I think what uh, the teams do uh, in terms of off the pitch, um, what they get out of those players, what they're able to absorb from the experiences they've got as World Cup winners um, is critical, really, because who knows what the impact on the pitch will will be able to be given the, sh- the short time frame. 
when you say that, you remind me a little bit of when Amandine Henri came over to play mm-hmm. in Portland and said that she was hoping she could take some of the American mentality back to the French national team. It's debatable whether or not that has worked, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you see the, these moves benefiting the English national team? And does the FA have anything to do with these clubs trying to acquire American players, or is that more separated than it is here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's pretty separate. Um, I know the FA, uh, obviously, as everyone is pretty delighted that the league is getting a boost in this way, especially after, you know, kind of many people were sort of not quite writing the obituaries of, of the WSL women's football, but expecting it to take a big step back. These names coming in has been a huge, huge boost to, uh, to the new league season, um, after such a long time without any kind of domestic football in, uh, in England. So that they're very excited about it from that point of view, but also excited about it from a point of view of, um, the, that, that you're going to have English players in the league fighting for places in teams and, and fighting on the pitch with some of the best players in the world that could only improve, um, the English players game, um, whether or not they get in the squads, you know, is it remains to be seen, you know, particularly some of the younger ones that have had, may have had opportunities in the past, you know, there's, there's less, obviously less spaces in, in starting 11s to go around if you've got a loads of imports coming into, into first teams. But at the same time, you know, you've got to compete with the best to be the best and battling for those, those shirts and those numbers, you're going to help that grow. As far as the players we've mentioned so far, Heath and Press haven't been seen yet, neither is Rose Lavelle. The only time I saw Sam Mewis was in the Community Shield, and I thought she was kind of average, looked like she was just kind of trying to get the feel for her teammates. Has she been better than that in the two league matches yet, if you've gotten any sense of how she's performed? Uh, I'd say similar, um, sort of still finding her feet, getting to know her teammates. It's, it's very much... Uh, I, I think the signing of Sam and Rose into that uh, Manchester City midfield has been really, really excellent because uh, City have a fantastic defensive record. They've got brilliant talent in Ella White, um, Chloe Kelly, um, and the rest up top, um, and injecting some of the uh, the experience and skill of those two players into that midfield is, I, I think is going to be very, very f- fruitful. Um, I think they'll benefit massively from playing with the likes of Kira Walsh, who is a phenomenal player. Um, and so I think it will be um, a really, really good move for both of them and good for Man City. At the moment, like you say, uh, Community Shields, it was yeah, a pretty average cameo from Mewis. Uh, I'd say you know, she's sort of, yeah, still finding her feet in the team a little bit. It's not been amazing. City have struggled a little bit um, in the first couple of games of the season. Haven't looked like they've totally clicked. And I think that that is partly because of pre-season being so stunted. You know, Arsenal have really hit the ground running, but they had Champions League football to prepare for, and which sort of gave them a little bit of a head start on the league. Chelsea have had most of their starting 11 together for a longer period of time, you know, with Sam Kerr joining in um, in January, uh, Pernell Harder coming into the team, but has played against and with a lot of these players. 
Um, so it, it's a sort of slightly easier transition for for, the, for those teams um, into this new season. Um, City, I think, just need a bit more time. Obviously, got a new manager in place as well, who's not managed this level before. Um, and I think it's just going to take a little bit, a little bit of time for them to find their feet and click. But the signs are good. I mean, the the positions that they play and how they sort of slot into the existing structure that City have um, means that there's like huge potential for them to be successful in those positions. Our guest on the Equalizer podcast is Susie Rack from The Guardian over in England. You mentioned Pernil Harder, so we may as well go Harder and Sam Kerr. Really, that has an opportunity, I think, to be one of, if not the best combinations of offensive players up top that women's football's ever seen. And they put nine as a team on Bristol City last weekend. Uh, what are the early returns, very early returns on Kerr and Harder? Uh, very, very exciting. Um, very promising. Um, Sam Kerr her scoring record hasn't been amazing. I think she's got two goals this season, well, in two games. But, I mean, that shows the, the level that we're talking about now um, as to, you know, what is what is settled and what isn't. And Harder has been phenomenal, has hit the ground running straight away, came off the bench, scored and assisted uh, in the short space of time she was on the pitch v Bristol on, the, on Sunday last week. Um, and what's exciting about Sam Kerr is although she's not quite found the her shooting boots in the same way that she did very quickly in the NWSL and uh, in the W League on Australia. She's uh, her positioning is is phenomenal. She's you know she's missing chances. So the the fact that she's getting those chances is an indication that you know eventually it will it it will click a little bit more for her. She seems slightly frustrated with the way uh, it's the way it's sort of going for her and the way the ball's falling for her and stuff at the moment. She's not quite getting. Getting uh, getting her foot around the ball in the way she'd like, but um, she's doing all the right things. So you so you know it's coming. You know that she's going to start firing. And uh, what's great about Chelsea's squad is she's got the luxury to be able to miss. I suppose you know missed three or four chances early on in the game on Sunday, but they win nine nine nil, and they have nine different goal scorers. And that's that's the strength of Chelsea. Is you know you bring in. Penil Harder for a world record fee, but you've got Frank Kirby returned from, you know, quite a serious illness and playing like she did five years ago. Um, you know, if anything, for me, the, the sort of return to fitness and, and sort of just a general enjoyment of the game of Frank Kirby is, is possibly going to be more significant for Chelsea than the signing of Harder will be because She's just so incredibly talented and such a game changer in sort of sitting in midfield or or as part of a front three. Um, she's been playing out wide a lot lately, but it's just the depth of that Chelsea squad means that you know you add a Sam Kerr and a Peniel Harder to the mix, and they've got the time to gel in bed to miss because there's there's so many other players on that team that will do the business around them. With the nine goals, and I don't think I've ever seen nine different goal scorers before, especially in a game of a league of this caliber. But they scored nine. Arsenal scored nine against West Ham. Uh, did those two games and did week two kind of blow up this notion that the WSL is super competitive top to bottom? Is you know, is there still a long way to go before this league is in any team can beat any team on any week, sort of thing? Yeah, no, I think like 
it's a hard one really because we asked Joe Montemura about that after the uh, Arsenal's nine nil, uh, sorry nine one defeat of West Ham, and he he said, you know, we've we've had a lot more time than West Ham to prepare for this game. We were playing Champions League football. Obviously, they only played the the one game against PSG, but they did all the preparation before that, and then all the preparation before the start of the league, and so it kind of were were together as a group earlier. West Ham were quite unlucky, I'd say, for the first twenty minutes of that game. They really made Arsenal work, um, and it was sort of a sending off of Julie Flaherty um, in the first half, which was really quite silly because you know moaning to the referee about about offside decisions, which you know she probably had a decent case for, but you just got to kind of hold your tongue, cost them dearly. That's when they fell apart. So really, I, I think if she had been on the pitch, that 9-1 wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be as, as quite as severe as that. It, they just sort of collapsed once uh, once she left the pitch and the second goal had gone in for Arsenal. So I think that's, that might be a slightly rogue result in terms of, nine different goal scorers for Bristol City. It doesn't look good. Um, and it's, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because you're, you're torn between praising clubs and teams that, that invest and take women's football seriously um, and also wanting to see a very, very competitive league, not wanting to see results like that that aren't the best advert for the game. And Emma Hayes was quite strong on it afterwards um, and said that... Um, you know, she thought they were slightly kind of, you know, unfairly, not penalised, but criticised for, for success um, when, you know, her hope is a sort of trickle down economics, so to speak, of, of you know, they they push the game forward, they invest and hopefully some of the broadcast money and things filter down and help help the little guys. Um, but I, I, I do think it, it, you know, you can't have two results like that one day after the other uh, and not think that there there is a growing gap between the top and the bottom of the WSL the, the, the best part of it is is that we've got Manchester United and Everton both pushing those top three teams so it, it's almost like there's sort of three tiers to the league now rather than two um but it, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's not as competitive as I think people like to claim it is. Um, the fact that it is so competitive between the top four or five teams makes it more interesting because there is a you know a few more who can take points off those top teams, um, which makes it a little bit more interesting. But we, you know we are still talking about uh, an elite and the rest, and you know I think it's a little bit rich that a lot of fans and players in the WSL are very quick to criticise the French League and Lyon for um, for the huge disparity between them and the rest. And yet, we're heading in that direction ourselves. And that seems to be the way it needs to go for teams to be able to compete with the likes of Lyon on a European level. Uh, you need to have huge squads of elite players to be able to think about challenging them for Europe's premier prize. So it, it's it's a difficult one. It's a bit of a rock and hard place. Um, personally, I think there needs to be a sort of restructure and re- rethink of the, of the league as a whole and what the FA want from it to, to make it fairer, uh, better prize money distribution. Um, I think we need to be thinking about the league 
in terms of what is equitable rather than what is equal um, and helping the clubs that need it, that can't afford it, but have the, have that commitment. Um, otherwise, we will end up with a with a sort of France type situation where, you know, you're going to win every single game and then maybe have a decent game against PSG and then win every single game. And that makes it easier for you to complete, compete in the Champions League because you're, you've got an ability to rest and recuperate players around those big fixtures in a way that we don't quite have here at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's a big problem and those results don't look good and no one likes to see them. No manager likes to see them. Um, but you can't tell players not to score. Yeah, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't get an Alex Morgan mentioned in. Uh, she still is the name in U.S. soccer. Uh, she's going to a smaller club over in England, which surprised some people. But what is the reception for Alex Morgan? And is there still a little bit of vitriol for Morgan after the celebration at the World Cup last summer? I don't think there's any vitriol. It's more um, good, good, good sense of humour uh, towards towards it. You know, jokes about uh, bringing her cups of tea at the stadium and things like that. But very, very good natured joking. I think. Generally speaking, the outrage was more to hype the rivalry around a big game and a big competition and, and you know, just more a little bit of fun to, to fire things up around, around that tournament, so to speak. So I don't, I, you know, I don't think any of that's lasting. It's just a bit of, a bit of friendly banter. Um, in terms of her going to Spurs, I mean, I, had heard a rumour that it was going to happen and just sort of ignored it because I just thought it was such a bizarre rumour that it couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> um, I mean, like, there, it, it's fantastic for Tottenham. Um, they have, you know, Karen uh, has, in particular, um, has worked so hard at that club to build them up from where they were um, through promotions and... Uh, over a, a close to 10 year period and it, they've not always been totally backed by the club um as a as a, as a whole um have been kept very at arm's length from from brand tottenham I, I suppose is the best way to say it um and that's changing and the arrival of morgan transforms that because there's no way they're going to have uh alex morgan on a rubbish contract, eating jam sandwiches and not having a fridge that works uh, where they train. You know, that's that, that's a game changer um, in terms of the way the club are treating their their women's team. And in in the set, like it's cliche to say it again, but I think her impact in particular will be bigger off the pitch than it is on it in terms of getting Tottenham to take their women's team completely seriously um and treat them as professional athletes in the way they do their men's team um and and just attitudes uh around the club and around around the women's team i think that's that's going to be the biggest the biggest effect she has by far um and just profile on the women's team amongst fans too i mean it's been huge uh you know it's been trending Spurs put it on uh, a huge billboard in Leicester Square uh, when it was announced, and it just shows a, another level of commitment from them to to their women's team. And 
it's I'd say it's probably a good club for her to go to in a sense in that she she will, she will have a lot of influence off the pitch um, and in the dressing room and it, on attitudes um, on the pitch. Obviously, she's not played a huge huge amount, and I'm I'm not totally going to I'm not totally convinced she's going to get the kind of service that she needs as as a kind of elite forward uh, from Spurs. Their possession at the weekend was very very low. Um, so whether they even get on the ball to be able to give it to her is going to be a problem. But the the sort of more ideological impact on the club, the game, and growing those mid-level teams, I think is going to be uh, hugely impactful. One more question for Susie Rack of The Guardian. Susie, we solicit questions via Twitter each week, and we've got one that I'll share with you from Tom Stidham. How can European women leagues close their gap between the top and bottom teams? I think you've already expressed that you are concerned that that's becoming more of a problem in England. Personally, I don't blame Lyon for being too good. I blame the rest of the French league for not being resourceful or you know, and spending enough to get better. But if you were queen for a day and could put in one rule to help push things in the right direction, what would it be? One rule, I would say that... Um... All prize money for league winners, cup winners should be shared and, and broadcast rights should be shared equitably amongst teams rather than equally. So give it to the teams that need, give, give more money to the teams that need it for, for, for their, for their development. I, like you could say, well, is it that, isn't that penalizing the clubs that, um, that are successful and, um, and rewarding the clubs that haven't invested properly. But for some of the teams at the bottom of the table, they just don't have it. You know, the likes of Bristol City do not have the money of, of a Chelsea or an Arsenal or a City or a United. They just, it, it, it dwarfs it. So let's have a look at the clubs. Let's have a look at their finances. Let's have a look at their p- potential finances and, and do things a, li- a little bit more equitably. I think Germany really showed um, during the uh, pandemic um, just how you do that, where you had... Um, the clubs that had that were, you know, partnered to big men's teams, so the likes of Bayern Munich and Wolfsburg, and and some of the bigger clubs within uh, the the big men's Champions League clubs that have women's teams waived their uh, their share of of sort of coronavirus funding that was that was distributed to uh, to the women's league, um, and that shows a sort of a bit of a a bit of a different way of, of looking at things of, of recognising that it is beneficial to have to have teams and a variety of teams and um, and decent competitiveness between teams in a league uh, that I don't think you get quite anywhere else um, so yeah I'd like to see things just done a little bit more equitably and a little just a bit more planned through uh, rather than it just being you know you you win a cup, you get the most money. You are a Champions League club, you get the most broadcast money. You're on TV, the most you get the most money. No, it should be what is. Let's think bigger picture. Let's let's work out what is beneficial for the growth of the game, and that is to make the budgets of teams as close to each other as possible. And if teams can't afford that, then how do we help them be able to afford it? Um, so that we have a truly competitive league because that's then how you you raise everyone up 
at the same time rather than kind of have this sort of rat race trickle down of economics that we've got going on at the moment. Susie Rack, thanks so much for your time. No, no problem. It's good to be here. Susie Rack from The Guardian. Check out her work uh, at The Guardian and also on Twitter at Susie Rack, S-U-Z-Y-W-R-A-C-K. I'll be back with Rachel Krigger. We'll talk NWSL fall series. You're listening to The Equalizer podcast. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. I want to make sure that you know we also have another podcast called Kicking Back, which is interview-based. We talk to players, coaches, personalities from across women's soccer about defining moments in their career and some important things from the present day and look ahead a little bit to the future. We've had guests like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, Jill Ellis, Bev Yanez, Ali Riley, Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm, so many already and many more to come. So please go ahead and check out Kicking Back Pod on any platform you find your podcast after, of course, you've finished up with this episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Back on the Equalizer podcast with a reminder to please check out our web content at EqualizerSoccer.com. And for premium content, it's EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. If not already a member, check out the slash subscribe link and start your free seven-day trial today. And also, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please remember to rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Thanks again to Susie Rack from The Guardian. And that website, by the way, for The Guardian is The Guardian. Dot com, And we'll turn it over to Rachel Krigger, who joins me now for segment two. And Rachel, fall series, actually got a full weekend where all the games happened, but not without our drama this weekend. Let's just run down the results. Courage and Pride play 0-0. First time we've seen the Pride since September of last year. And they look, and it's hard to say, but uh, 0-0, both teams hit the woodwork. Ashlyn Harris made one great save on Dabinia, had another one squirt through her hands and got cleared off the line. So that one ends 0-0. We had Chicago pretty much run over Sky Blue FC 4-1. And the Thorns ran over Utah 3-0. But the moment that game kicked off, we got the news that Craig Harrington and Louis Lancaster, the head coach and one of the assistant coaches for the Royals, had been placed on leave of absence. Nobody seems to know why. Amy LaPelbit coached the team as the interim head coach. That was well-received, although I don't think anybody wanted it to be for this particular reason. Uh, but with that as the backdrop, Rachel, what do you what do you got for me on this NWSL? And if I call it the uh, Challenge Cup, forgive me, it's the NWSL Fall <laughs> What do you have for us on the Fall Series? I feel like this is just a, a run of the um, a runoff of the Challenge Cup too. So all all is forgiven. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really can only comment on on Sunday's games, but you know, it was it was entertaining. I thought the um, I thought the Chicago game was really good. It was all it was a big um, it was a statement from the Red Stars to be able to you know drop a goal early from Anamanu and then come back and score four unanswered uh, in, in throughout the rest of the game. So that was good on them and good to see um, Kalia Watt get her first and second goal for the, uh, for the Chicago Red Star. So cool to see her finally get on the score sheet. And then for the, um, I mean, for the Portland game in the, in the Utah game, it was just, I mean, first and foremost, it was great to be able to see the game in Portland with all of the wildfire stuff going on on the West coast and Oregon, California, Washington. And, you know, to just watch the team be able to compete at Providence park was, was definitely good to see. It's, it's a positive and, 
in the right direction on, on that front. And then, um, you know, obviously the highlight of that game, I think, was Sophia Smith coming in and uh, having her debut and then um, scoring the, the second of three goals for the Portland Thorns. Lindsay Horan kind of scored one of the weirdest goals I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. It was a total defensive breakdown from uh, Utah and, and, and goalkeeper Abby Smith, but I've never seen <laughs> an attacking player score deflecting the ball with her body. So that was a new one for me. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was a good slew of games this weekend. Um, I, I didn't get to watch the pride game, but I did see the save that Ashlyn Harris made. And, you know, everybody's saying, you know, don't even count any votes for, for save of the week. Just give it to her. And then I saw the, uh, did you see the, um, the Instagram story or whatever of, um, Sydney LaRue catching her daughter Rue? Uh, from falling off oh my gosh it's she captioned it like oh this is the real save of the week because her daughter was on the couch and she like you know was standing on the couch and like fell over and Cindy LaRue grabbed her before she hit the ground wasn't there one a few years ago with her son getting pulled through an airport and almost like fell off the suitcase and one of her teammates like swooped in and grabbed them I think that was Ashlyn Harris yeah I think I think Ashlyn Harris was like walking behind and and good to have the keeper behind you (laughs) <laughs> yeah and she she like captioned hers like save of the week and everyone was like oh no this is the save of the year and so a little fun I'm, on social media for them i'm gonna bust out some of my old school knowledge here about the uh, deflected goal there was a game i was at in 2002 i think gao hong was playing goalie for the new york power she was the goalie on the chinese team in the 99 world cup and she cleared a ball I can't remember if it was a goal kick or a punch or whatever it was, but she cleared a ball. There was not a Boston breaker player within 30 feet, and the ball deflected off the head of her defender, Ronnie Fair, and took a big, huge bounce back over Gao Hong and went in for an own goal. So that is the most bizarre, fortuitous goal I've ever seen in my life. Um, Sounds like it. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I, it was really cool, I thought, to see Marta out playing for the Pride because I feel like every time something happens, there's this random thought that, well, Marta's not going to do this or Marta's not going to do that. And all she has been since she's been in Orlando and really since she's been here in WPS has been all in for everything that's happened because, if you know, you would think that it would be an e- it would be easy for Marta to opt out, but she didn't. And she is very much there, and I think that's really exciting to see, especially because Morgan isn't there and Allie Riley isn't there. And, I mean, who else isn't there? Um, Emily Sonnet isn't there. I mean, a ton of players are on loan. A lot of players that most of us don't know a whole lot about coming into these games. And for them to play the courage to a draw, I know it's not exactly the A team for the courage either, but I thought it was really nice to see that out of Orlando and totally agree on Sophia Smith. It was what three minutes after she came in the game and she scored that goal and that's what they got her for. So if they can get that kind of production, uh, that'll be great. But I'm sure she was really excited to get in that game after having to miss the entire challenge cup and, you know, finally getting an opportunity here. Yeah. It was like three or four minutes after she came in and, you know, Megan Klingenberg sent the ball in the box. And I mean, I, I don't think she could have hit the header any perfect, more perfect than she did. I mean, it was a really, really good goal. And I'm just, I'm happy for her because it's a long, it's a long road for injury. And then you add in all of the craziness of 2020. And it, I'm sure just like the mental aspect of it was difficult. So to see her 
on the pitch and, you know, healthy and scoring goals. That was exciting to see. And I mean, she's, she's the, um, the next generation, right? I mean, it's, it's really cool to see not necessarily the passing of the torch because, you know, Christine Sinclair, for an example, she stayed on and that, you know, they were on the pitch together playing, um, playing in the rest of the game. But, um, it is cool to see that younger generation coming up and, and just being able to compete at, at this level and, you know, make their name known. And as far as Kaylee Yawat goes, I'm not sure there's a player in this entire fall series that may be more needed to leave the fall series with a goal than Kaylee Yawat because she's been trying and trying and trying to get back to her 2006, or I guess her pre-ACL self, which was early in the 2017 season. And it hasn't happened. And she had moments in the Challenge Cup where she was good, but she didn't actually score. I feel like she kind of needs to score to be really effective, and I thought it was really important. And, I, you know, you got to wonder how much confidence she'll take out of those two goals. You know, Sinclair hasn't scored now, and I don't know how many consecutive games, at least the Thorns have got their three goals because they were anemic in the Challenge Cup offensively. But I don't think that bothers Sinclair, I don't, and I don't think she needs that to be confident going into 2021. I feel like Kaylee Watt probably will benefit a lot from these two goals. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I think that they're finally putting her in a position where she can succeed. I, I think it was after the, the post game press, during the post game press conference with Rory Dames, he had said, you know, I'm thinking about putting you in the number nine. And she kind of expressed concerns to him and whatnot. And, and he said that they were able to just finally put her into a position, get pieces around her. Vanessa DiBernardo pushed up a little more in, on the field to kind of, um, um, supplement her and, and just be with her in the attack. And it, and it worked out well because she assisted one of her goals. So I, I think that Chicago has finally found the right fit for her. And you're not always going to get it right when you have a new player. And I think that it's taken a bit of testing at the Challenge Cup and whatnot with her. But I think her being in that number nine role is going to work well for Chicago. All right, let's talk about this Craig Harrington situation. Um, and we're not avoiding it, but we really don't know a lot about it. I had heard last night at some point some whispers that Amy LaPelbert would be coaching the team for this game. And that's not totally unusual, you know, especially in these bubble environments where people have to leave. There could be personal reasons that a coach isn't there. Um, but the fact that it wasn't mentioned at all, raises a little bit of a red flag. And then the the broadcast sort of just casually mentioned it. Oh, by the way, Amy LaPelbert is the coach, and Harrington and Lancaster were placed on leave of absence. The team didn't reply to me until the game started, and then they basically sent me the statement. I asked for further comment and was told there was no further comment. And then a really interesting thing was that they brought out Amy Rodriguez first in the post-game Zoom call, and she said, I'm happy to talk about soccer, and immediately you roll your eyes and, you know, everybody, you know, you, you know, on one hand, you want to be, you know, you want to do social justice things. You want to talk about that. But then when there's something going on in the organization, you don't want to talk about it. So you're rolling your eyes. And she said, I've been instructed not to talk about this. And so that was really interesting. And then Vera Boquette skirted around the issue with a few more words. And then they, uh, the pelvic was asked about timing when she found out and she said it happened quick. And then somebody else followed up and asked her about the timing. 
and she deflected that one too. Nobody from the Royals organization other than the statement put out as a group have commented. The players put out a joint statement earlier in the day that, you know, at the time seemed like, okay, you know, they're just putting out a statement prior to the their first game in the fall series, but maybe that was related. So, you know, Meg Linehan has been on every story in the league for a while now as reported some whisperings that it has to do with inappropriate things said by Craig Harrington. You know, again, I don't want to say too much or speculate too much, and I'm sure we'll find out. You know, it sounds like it'll this is the end of the line for him as head coach in Utah and that Amy LaPelbit now hopefully will get her shot. I mean, they looked horrible in this game, but, um, you know, hopefully she'll get her shot into 2021. But, I mean, there's really not a whole lot else to say about it. You know, that, that's where we are, at least as of our recording. You know, it's, we'll see what happens Monday morning. Yeah, I don't really think there's much else to say, but I guess to add on on one point, it's just that, you know, if everything is true that is being reported, I don't think that's just Craig Harrington's way out of Utah. I don't think he'd be coaching in the NWSL after that, right? No, probably not, not at least for a very long time. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of unknowns. A lot of unknowns, and I... You know, a lot of people were upset about how the team handled it. I mean, part of part of PR is damage control, and I think the club maybe thought they were controlling the damage, but they basically took everybody's attention off the game. And then they had their players and Amy LaPelba doing the speaking for them, and they didn't really say anything at all. So now there's all speculation out there. And, you know, I'm here saying I don't like to speculate. But if you're not going to answer the questions or give the information, then you are leaving it up to people to speculate. So even though we don't like to do it, it's almost like the Royals are saying, here we go. This person is not our head coach right now. He's on leave of absence from team activities. We're not telling you anything. So you go right ahead and guess. Yeah, I don't know. I just a little bit more transparency would always be nice, I guess. That's the only thing that I have to say. And there's a way to be transparent without saying exactly what happened. You know, the Dallas Stars, who were in the Stanley Cup final, got rid of their head coach at some point during the season. And it was it turned out that it was for off-ice behavior, but it wasn't directed at a player. But they put – and I don't remember the exact timeline of how it happened. So maybe there was a moment where, in their case, people in the NHL world were saying the same thing. But they eventually made statements and they put the appropriate people in front of microphones to discuss it. Whether they could say what they really wanted to say or needed to say is another story, but they didn't just leave it up to the players to do that. All right, let's hit some uh, Twitter questions now. Um, Chewy Warwick, with the multitude of international and U.S. veteran players leaving the league, which team so far appears to have the most well-prepared rookies for the fall series. I oh might have my. said Utah about <laughs> six hours ago, but uh, that was not a good outing against the uh, against the Thorns. I mean, I would probably say the Thorns. Yeah, they don't get enough credit for play development. We didn't mention the Simone Charlie goal either, because that was spectacular. Right. Yeah, and I think she's extremely underrated. Um, Simone Charlie is probably one of my favorite um, forwards in the league, so I don't know why I didn't mention that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd probably say I'd probably say Portland. I mean, 
I know the the question is about the fall series, but I can't get over how Morgan Weaver was really solid during the Challenge Cup. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's hard to argue with Portland, especially when Sophia Smith scored in her debut today. Tom says, predict an easy and a surprising player that will be made available in the expansion draft for each team, if possible. I don't know about each team, (laughs) but a surprise player pick. I could see, um, you know, depending on roles and everything, because we we don't have those yet, I could see Louisville trying to go with like a veteran type of of core. So maybe McCall Zerboni from Sky Blue. Oh, that's interesting. Um I think Adriana French. Although that might be tempered a little bit because Bixby got hurt, but I kind of feel like you know, why not give it a shot that maybe Louisville will jump on on French. I know she's a free player because she's allocated at the moment and there's you know who we'll see if if u.s players get traded and how many have to be exposed but i've been kind of thinking for a while that maybe portland would move on from french Mm. and she'd be on the board now whether you know whoever louisville takes i don't know i my question is still do you leave sam mewis out there and do you attempt louisville with sam mewis do you you think that there would be a situation that you know, like back with the the trade fiasco with Kristen Press to Houston and to Chicago, do you think there'd be any like U.S. players who are like, no, I don't want to go there um, and like try to hold out or like go overseas or something? I wouldn't be surprised. I think the league has created a culture of I don't want to go there and I'll threaten to retire or do whatever I have to do. That was a good deflection, by the way, of my question. <laughs> very similar I'm, I'm to that post game zoom because I don't think I wouldn't take Mewis if I were Louisville. I don't want to start my team by picking a player that I'm waiting for to come back. I, oh, I don't like, like picking that. her rights. Oh, I understand now. Okay, right, because she's still, as far as I know, she would still have to be protected. But I, I mean, look, she's a really good player, so it, you know, maybe it's too big a risk to take. If you're North Carolina, but if I'm Louisville, I mean, I'm not saying it's a definite no, but I don't want to wait. I don't want to pick a player and have these, you know, I don't want the player that's going to run my midfield just not be there for a while. Right. That's just me. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, at that point, you know, depending on roles and stuff, just like take Lynn Williams or something. Yeah, Lynn Williams is playing pretty good soccer to it. I mean, she was a little quiet at times in this game. How about here's another player, um, Lauren Malay. Any thoughts on Lauren Malay from North Carolina? From what I've seen, I haven't been able to see a lot, but from what I've seen, I think she's been good. Um, I saw she, she was the one that created the chance on that Ashlyn Harris save, right? For Jabinia. I, so. I believe yeah. so. Yeah. I mean, she is obviously she's showing she can make make plays happen and she can create chances. So yeah, I I think so. Um, obviously I think with North Carolina, when you have like your set starting 11 and I think, I think Paul Riley knows who he wants to protect and who he's going to, you know, leave out there for Louisville, but just hope and pray (laughs) that they don't get taken. Um, 
And I think, you know, just like with the players that they have, I don't see them protecting her, uh, Lauren Malay, but I don't know. I could, I could see Christy Holly and Louisville just maybe looking for more veteran players. Yeah, I can see that. But if they get 10 picks, if Lauren Malay's out there, I think I take her. I mean, obviously got to see who else is on the board. But I think if Lauren Malay is available and I'm Louisville, I take her. And the Courage have an awful lot of players. So that's, you know, they're going to have to go pretty deep. I expect, um, you know, in part to answer this question, I do expect a trade or two that especially maybe involving U.S. players that will shuffle the decks in terms of who has to be protected. Um, so I, I do think we're not, you know, I don't think you could right now make a protected list among the rosters as they stand right now because I think they'll be a little bit different. So that's that. Any parting shots on the week? Um, well, I think Dabinia's good at soccer. That might be one thing Dabinia's that m- might not be known. I think she is, you know, there's so much spotlight on the national team player, the U.S. women's national team players, and for you know, obvious and good reason, but some of those other internationals that kind of get ignored, I think they deserve some more spotlight. And I mean, Dabini is just the best of the best of the best. And she's the best player in the league right now, isn't she? I would 100% agree with that. I think you and John said that last week too. Yeah, I think Ertz um, is the only other place you can go there. Yeah. Or may, maybe Dunn too. Yeah. Dunn. I didn't think Dunn had a great post uh, world cup. Last year, but yeah, I would agree. I thought Dunn pre World Cup was off the charts last year. Yeah, I mean, I just Davina deserves more credit than she gets. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I was watching her and Marta chatting once during the game, once after the game, and you kind of realize Davina is the best player Brazil has too right now. Right. Which is um, passing on the torch. Yeah, absolutely. Not that you know Marta hasn't let go yet, but she's she's passed the main grip off, I think over to Dabinia. All right, Rachel, thanks again for participating on the podcast this week. Thanks also to Susie Rack of The Guardian for joining us. We've got another weekend of NWSL Fall Series coming up, and we'll see what happens uh, with Craig Harrington and Utah. He's on leave of absence. Amy LaPelbit, who was once on the national team and once I thought should have been NWSL Defender of the Year, but what do I know? Uh, She's now the interim head coach of Utah Royals. FC. So for Rachel, thanks again to Susie. My name is Dan Lawletta. You've been listening to the Equalizer podcast.